In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You joined the Marines because of 9-11. 9-11, and also that I, you know, felt this sense of, like most people, I think, are my age at that time wanted to do something and get involved but also like there wasn't a lot of opportunities where I was in Indiana you know being an actor I was interested in it but it didn't seem like a realistic thing that I could actually do at the time um you know I was working odd jobs and so it was a it was a collection of things but that was the um initial push Adam Driver was a dedicated marine who became a huge star as an actor and what an actor He brings sensitivity, strength, and raw power to movie after movie. We talked in our Manhattan studio during his run on Broadway in the play Burn This, for which he was nominated for a Tony. Adam, this is so great. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you today because and I don't, there's two things I don't want to do. I don't want to embarrass you and I don't want to hurt your performances. Oh, okay. Because you got to do a performance on stage tonight. But I just, yeah. I just got to tell you how spectacular... I feel you are as an actor. I yeah. mean, just amazing. Oh, thank you. That, you know, as you know, means a lot coming from you. I love you. Well, uh, <laughs> well we're a little late, so good night, folks. <laughs> well, I mean, I saw you in one week in uh, two performances, one that you're doing on the stage now in New York, Burn This. Mm-hmm. And then I saw you in the movie that... We're we're in together. Oh, that had, yeah, it's you, not coming out till the end of the year. You saw Noah's movie. Yeah, Noah Baumbach's new movie, which doesn't have a title yet as we speak. And they're two completely different characters that you play. And if somebody hadn't seen the other character, they'd say, yeah, he's wonderful. But, of course, that's who he is. He's just playing himself. And yet you played your you – play, you found yourself in these two opposite people. And it looks like it's really you. But it's so spontaneous and full of life. And, and the other the two reasons that I don't want to barrage you with this too much <laughs> is that I don't want to embarrass you and I also don't want to hurt your performance because uh, sometimes praise hurts more than criticism. Do you find that? Yeah, yeah. If someone's like, oh, I really like that moment when you did that thing, then yeah. you, when you're doing it again, you can't help but think of like, oh, this is a good moment. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've been told. <laughs> and from then on, it stinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Then it loses its... Uh, 
you think of it on the outside as opposed to why you're doing it to uh, to begin with, which is yeah. all very internal. And you have an interesting beginning to to your acting career, it seems to me. But you came to acting after a life in the Marines. Yeah, yeah. You joined the Marines because of 9-11. Yeah, shortly after, yeah. 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 And you I, were young. And, How old were you? I, 18, 18. I, it was uh, 9-11 and also that I, you know, felt this sense of, like most people I think are my age at that time, wanted to do something and get involved, but also like there wasn't a lot of opportunities where I was in Indiana. You know, being an actor, I was interested in it, but it didn't seem like a realistic thing that I could actually do at the time. Um, you know, I was working odd jobs and so it was a it was a collection of things, but that was the um, initial push was nine eleven. Did that give you experience that you wouldn't ordinarily have had? Oh, totally. I, I mean, it's a kind of um, ultimate actor training in a way. You're at the especially for that time and my age because you're with you know forty guys who are in very heightened circumstances all the time. So behavior is very. Um, Everything else is heightened. There's the threat of death, kind mm. of, you know, even when you're training. Well, well wait a minute. Well, <laughs> they shoot real bullets. You have to crawl under real bullets at one point. Yeah, you do. You do. And, the, and what the also... hell is the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's all just making it real. Like these are, you it, You know, there's something, there's a difference between firing blanks and firing real bullets. So suddenly yeah. you're like, oh, okay, the weight of, not the physical weight, obviously, but the, the weight of what it is we're doing suddenly, um, the temperature goes up and the, yeah. how do you respond to that under pressure? It, it just makes you, I think, appreciate life more at a very young age where in the civilian world, you're not really put in that opportunity a lot where you're with your civilian friends hanging out and something happens. You know, when you're in a military environment and something bad happens and you watch people rise to the occasion and protect you, mm. you don't really get that a lot in the civilian world. And it, it's very uh, bonding in a short amount of time. And that's exactly what kind of acting is to kind of make a, you know, an a external comparison that, you know, you're forced to be intimate with complete strangers in a short amount of time yeah. and keep nothing back. And it kind of makes strange bedfellows. You have somebody from Texas, you have somebody who's trying to get their green card or, you know, some from Indiana in my case, you know, all kind of together doing this job who outside of the military have nothing in common. Um, but because of this job that they're doing, they're, you know, like brothers and, and you have uh, one guy who's leading it, you know, you have a director or a squad leader and sometimes they're smart and know what they're doing. And in the case of Noah, or, um, sometimes they don't and it, what you're doing feels dangerous and a waste of time <laughs> and energy, you know, yes, right. there's a lot of discipline required. There's self maintenance. Yeah. There's, you know, working as a cohesive unit to accomplish a mission that's bigger than any one person. You have one role and you have to do your role really well. So everybody else can do their role but really you're well. Very much aware of being part of a group. Yes. Yeah. It, the, the ensembleness of being in the military was, um, was great training for me as far as being on a film set or being, um, uh, you know, a TV show or as especially in theater. But you had an accident and weren't able to be deployed with right. your with your teammates. Right, yeah. And you you were regretful about that. Oh yeah, you know, I really wanted to go. All, all the politics that I had uh, before I joined the military, which I, you know, I didn't really uh, I didn't really know much about uh, anything. They kind of go away once you're in the military, I think. I felt I can't speak for the um, everyone else. But for me, it was it, 
whatever was going on outside our, our nucleus didn't really, I didn't take it in very much. I wanted to go because you want to be with the guys that you've been with since, yeah. since the beginning and to not, you know, do your part and have someone else fill it in is a terrible feeling. What was your accident that kept you from going uh, overseas? I was in a mountain biking accident. Like I, I bought these two mountain bikes and a friend of mine went to go PT on her own on this huge mountain that was PT p- uh, physical training uh-huh. but on your own. Because uh, we had like a different uh, briefing that morning, so we missed PT with the rest of the of the the platoon, and we uh, were going up this huge mountain. I'd had no experience in riding mountain bikes, and went down this hill at like mock speed and hit a ditch, and the handlebars went in my chest and Oy. dislocated or broke my sternum. So then I had to kind of walk down the rest of the mountain because it wasn't even though <laughs> holding your sternum in one hand. Yeah, yeah, and because of that, it was like a whole series of uh, you know because it takes a long time to heal. You can either have them kind of fix it for you, like, but or you can it'll heal naturally. And I'm like, uh, so I, you know, I had so to what be, did you do? I just let it heal naturally, but it takes time, you know. Yeah. So they dropped me to a different unit, and from there, I was medically separated. I found when I, I was in the infantry, um, but in the reserve, so it wasn't really serious. They, they taught me, they tried to teach me how to be an officer twice, once in the reserves and once on active duty for six months. And I did learn stuff that I use to this day. You or, did learn stuff? I yeah. did. Or, organizing, because they were trying to help me learn how to be a leader. And I used that when I directed a movie. I directed a movie called Sweet Liberty where I had 200 uh, colonial soldiers in a battle scene and that could take days to shoot but I organized it because I had learned to organize things Right. and I had seven stuntmen teach each teach a group of these soldiers in seven different operations seven different uh, events you know battle events huh. and then I put them on the field, so no one, no two were the same next to one another. So, you, so you, it was all seven things happening many times over down the line. Huh. And with seven cameras, we had this battle scene that took only two hours to shoot instead of days. Huh. And that was because I had been accustomed to organizing. So, there, I can understand how how service has so many applications in real life that we don't imagine. I think that's also what's hard to convey to the, I think, the gen- civilians about uh, the military as it is, you know, um, think of it as a, a group that's just drills and discipline and pain, but it's, it is this uh, organization that's run by people, and those people have families on top of these incredibly stressful jobs, and uh, what... That's why it's always great to kind of hire a veteran because you're going to get someone on the whole, not always, obviously, but who's just more organized, you know, who's used to being put in a given responsibility at a very early age, who's told to just execute this, you know, what, whatever, whatever mission or plan right. or agenda, yeah. and, and it's going to be done thoughtfully, you know. I, uh, yeah, it's kind of infinite, the the it's it, for me it was very helpful maybe not for everybody but for me it was helpful i heard you say once i i, th- I don't know maybe you, you you did a really interesting ted talk maybe it was in that talk and you said when you went to juilliard and started studying acting you said you were becoming less aggressive and learning to put words to feelings 
Yeah. How, what what was that what was that about? I mean no disrespect for from to where I was from, but I wasn't raised where language was a huge uh was um have an avenue to express yourself. Theater part wasn't isn't wasn't a part of my diet, you know, yeah. re- really uh in Indiana and I feel like the power of theater one of the powerful things about theater is is watching it live and i for me coming out of the military reading a um you know true west the sam shepherd play mm-hmm. suddenly you have a play about brothers who you know really could be about two sides of the same person um kind of being tied to your genetics you know or or maybe you're different from you know your acquired family and your actual family like Mm -hmm. all these themes that i noticed in that play or or lots of plays that i was reading at at that time all these great contemporary american plays were articulating my military experience better than i could have and Mm -hmm. when you suddenly are finding words to those feelings that you have I mean, especially as like you know, uh, a male in your twenties just angry about everything anyway. I mean, maybe that's just maybe that's just me. But well, that was me too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that you were suddenly having like being able to use words to articulate it by people who are a lot smarter than you. You know, was really powerful. You know, then then suddenly it's like okay, I know what this is. I can label it now. You started this wonderful organization called Arts in the Armed Forces, I, and I've seen it at work a little bit. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it started in my second year at Juilliard where I'd just come from the military, and suddenly it was in this, you know, artistic acting environment, and it could not seemingly be two polar opposite things. And for the first time, was really discovering plays and playwrights and characters that had nothing to do with the military at all, but were somehow articulating my military experience and just being, you know, you know, life in general in a way that I hadn't been able to articulate myself before and kept thinking of the troop entertainment that I was exposed to when I was just in the military because I just came from that environment, which was all well-intended, but I felt like played to the lowest common denominator. And if there's one community that I felt like could benefit from, uh, being exposed to a new means of self-expression would be people that were asking to protect our country, you know, yes, who yeah. are given this stressful— So you would bring them plays yeah, with, so we, with nuance and dense experiences. Yeah, we so we just decided to pick, you know, cultivate a group of plays that we would bring with no sets, no costumes, no lights, just reading the material and perform them for a military audience and have a conversation afterwards about— you know, their thoughts on it. And we did our first one actually as a collection of monologues. We just picked, you know, a cross-section of monologues that had nothing to do with the military and just read them. And we went to Camp Pendleton where I was stationed at because every military base basically around the country has a um, uh, a group space that they use for training. In Camp Pendleton's case, it's a movie theater that is uh, uh, empty. Um, well, they play movies, but it's also this amazing stage that is unused as a theatrical space. Uh, so we like b- b- literally went and passed out flyers and tried to get in, in contact with the MWR, which is um, Military Wellness uh, uh, something. I'm forgetting the acronym right now. But uh, who help kind of cultivate performances on base. And a lot of people came skeptical of what it is we were doing. They didn't understand what 
you know, monologues were? Is this, are the actors, do they write the plays themselves? It was, uh, uh, anyway, we advertised and, you know, like a hundred people came. We had Laura Linney, my friend, uh, John Batiste, who plays for Stephen Colbert. Right. Now he came, they played jazz along with all these other actors, David Denman and Tracy Toms, my classmate, Gabe Ebert, myself. And we just read these monologues. And they, the connection was immediate. They understood immediately what we were kind of going for. And, and plays that I picked because I thought they were funny that, like, uh, for example, um, we picked this one monologue from this play called China by Scott Organ, where it's a, an employer reprimanding her employee for not wearing a bra, for not following a dress code. And I picked it because I thought it was funny. Um, and it is really funny. And the male Marines were leaving the audience being like, I thought it was great. The whole thing was good to go. I thought that one monologue was kind of an indirect attack on why we do things in the military, mm. that there's a structure and a uniform in place for a reason. And all the female Marines were leaving the, that performance being like, I thought the whole thing was good to go, especially that monologue, because I, <laughs> I know what it's like to be a female in a male-dominated organization. I have to wear my hat under my cover. You know, I have to hide any kind of sexuality, you know, a very shapeless uniform. And so it was all that. That's so exciting. That's what theater can be. It can be, it can piss you off. It can make you laugh, you know. Um, so we decided to try to keep doing this in our spare time. It, Juilliard's a conservatory. So we would literally go to class and in the 15 minutes that we're supposed to transfer to the next class, uh, you know, go down to the computer lab and try to send Hail Mary emails to actors that we loosely knew, you know, to see if we can organize this thing. And over time, over the 10 years that we've been doing it now, it, it went from one performance a year to the 15 that we're already doing this year, where we travel to different military bases from, you know, Germany to Kuwait to, you know, performance on Broadway, which you came to, or our 10th anniversary to, you know, uh, Walter Reed Medical Center. We're going to Fort Meade in, in a little bit. We're going to Marine Corps Mountain Training in California in, in, a, in the next couple months. And we just read these monologues. With, without a kind of, we don't lead them to say what it's about. We don't say it's a mental health initiative. We don't, we'll read the play tape sometimes by Stephen Belber, which is centered around a rape. Uh, but we don't say it's about, you know, sexual assault in the military. They kind of pull what it is. We don't advertise it as some kind of mental health initiative. It's just, you know, reading the best of contemporary American plays for uh, uh, an audience. And the idea that they wouldn't understand that, which is what we were told by different military organizations that I reached out to, to try to help us fund this, that, you know, the, that's, that doesn't fit the demographic of the military, just made me enraged. So we yeah, created our own organization that did that. So now is it easier for you to raise funds now that you've proven that it works? Totally. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot easier. Um, and the actors is now for the first time we have people bases reaching out to us to come because word of mouth is kind of spread and and actors reach out to us all the time and we've had a, a, we've been so lucky with the actors that we get to to go to these bases and just read these read these plays um, uh, and the response is kind of is exactly what you want I think in doing in theater we were talking about it a little bit that you know I've never seen a play before you know I didn't know theater could be this way something about seeing it live is more dangerous and exciting you know I feel like we're uh, uh, ex exposing them to this uh, new way of expressing themselves potentially and for the for the civilians that we bring it's exposure to a culture that they never would have been exposed to yeah you know so yeah. the Right now, the hum uh, immediately the the humanity between 
and misconceptions between both communities goes away. Yeah. Uh, centered around this story, you know. Yeah. And the talk back afterwards that was, you know, mandatory in the, the or not mandatory, but it's uh, mandatory for us to have is the best part of the whole thing because uh, the the conversation that certain, you know, plays that we do spark is, uh, you know, it's, it's the most exciting part about uh, getting to be an actor. The most inspiring part. I wanted to ask you about that. What what kind of things do you hear from people? I mean, are they are they experiencing a play? Many of them for the first time. Yeah, a lot of them are. I've never seen a play before. I've never seen a play on Broadway. It's too expensive. Our our events are free. Um, I didn't know theater could be like that. You know, things that you're like, oh, that's what you kind of hope to. Um, uh, hope to hear, you know, after yeah. like I, something it made a about, difference in my yeah, life. Somehow. Yeah. Something about seeing it live is, is different than watching it on movie, you know, seemingly, um, simple things, but it, it's, it, it's pretty powerful. I actually, we've been really lucky with burn this. I try to go out, to, uh, you know, and sign for people after the show mm-hmm. and, and talk to them a little bit. And I feel, I feel like, uh, I don't know if it's, just every show on Broadway, and I'm, I just haven't done a play in a while, but uh, the response of people saying I've never seen a play, or this is my first time being to the theater, has been a lot for our play, which has been really You're in a, this nice position probably of drawing people because of the success of the Star Wars picture. Maybe. Or drawing people Maybe. who may may not have thought of going to the theater in the first place. Yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever it is, I'll, I'll take it. You know, yeah. it's, it's exciting. I, I mean, it's like I, this is one of my favorite mediums. It, it, I, I have seen things in theater that are, that are, are so long lasting, you know, and yeah. exciting and scary that you just kind of can't get with, um, other, you know, film or television. When we come back, Adam Driver and I explore our experiences of acting in the theater compared with acting on film or television, and how acting on the stage is both scary and liberating. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Adam Driver. How do you feel about the difference between acting on the stage and acting in a film? The, the experience of, of the performance. I, I mean, uh, I'd also be interested to hear what you think about this, too. Uh, that, 
I, I they, they're just totally different to me. The, even film kind of feels like theater to me, but just for a smaller audience, you know. Yeah. The benefit of doing theater is you get more satisfied in that if you don't get it right, you have another shot the next night. Right. You know, yeah. I have a really bad like a. Uh, uh, remorse sometimes when you're shooting a movie if you feel like you haven't like a, you always go back to the hotel or wherever and you just think about that, it all I'll never night. get another chance yeah. to make that better I wanted to make a short <laughs> once about a, a right. camera looking into the windshield of a car and the, an actor is driving and he's just come from an audition and he does the one minute scene over and over again. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. We can't let go. You know? <laughs> that's that's 100% <laughs> the, the, true. Yeah, the thing I love about the stage, <laughs> probably the most, is the, I call it the ecstasy of the experience that's uninterrupted. The curtain goes up, and for the next two hours, you're in that white-hot moment that if if it goes wrong, it's... You, you can't take it back for that, right. that performance. You can make it better the next night, but right. it's happening live. Right. Your experience is heightened by it, and you have final cut. <laughs> right. right. You know, you have the responsibility of having final cut, and you have the, the freedom of having it. Right. And I, I, that's all very exciting to me. Yeah, and you're on this kind of quest per, for perfection that'll never get there. You'll you know, never get there. Yeah, yeah. And you have to learn eventually— that it is what it is. Right. I mean, I, I second-guessed my performances probably for 50 years. Oh, yeah. And and then I thought, it's over. It's done with. The reality is that's what happened. Right. And next time it'll happen a different way. And I can't decide to make it better. It's going to get better by itself. And the audience makes it kind of that, too, every night because yeah. they're they're a different audience. The collective intelligence is always different every night. So, Isn't that interesting how that happens? Yeah. They, have, they, they, they develop a personality, a group personality. Right, exactly. Sometimes it's because of a simple reason, like when I was doing Our Town in London on the stage. Oh, yeah. And uh, there are a lot of—I uh, love Our Town. Yeah, I, yeah. I did it because I just wanted to sit off stage and listen to the language every night. <laughs> yeah, you were the narrator? Yeah, yeah I was yeah. the stage manager. Oh, stage manager. The, yeah. the character of the stage manager. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one night—there are a lot of laughs in that show. And one <laughs> night, we weren't getting any laughs. And I thought, well, I know audiences have different personalities, but this is ridiculous. What's <laughs> happening here? It turned out the entire theater came by bus from Poland. <laughs> that was an extreme example <laughs> we, so, had, we had a night like that like a like a month ago where everyone seemed very tired and we're and we're like what's going on and afterwards it was a problem with the air conditioning and i guess in the house it was just yeah. really hot you know we and when i did a play about richard feynman called qed richard feynman was a great american physicist and he talked. Uh, he he helped develop the atomic bomb and got very depressed after it was used. And he and in the play, as Feynman, and I talk about sitting in a place in a restaurant in Times Square and imagining how much death and destruction would occur, how far, how many miles out from Times Square, right. if the bomb were to explode there. And when we did it in California, there was silence in the audience when I got to that speech. When we did it in New York a few months later, it was three weeks after 9-11. 
they were more silent. It, it didn't seem possible that they could be even more silent. And we talked about it afterwards. And the director said, I think I know what it is. Tonight, they weren't even breathing when you talked about that. <laughs> it just, because the event had been, had made such an impression on, on everybody that to call up the, uh, the image of an explosion again right. was, was so powerful. And you, that, to be aware of that when you're on the stage, when you have this awareness that something is happening to these people, not just laughter, but very often you can hear them with, when, when they're weeping, you can hear them reaching into their pocketbooks for handkerchiefs. Right. And there are all kinds of clues you get, or utter silence. And that's, a, that's an, a, an example of communication between the artist and the audience. I'm sensing that you have that experience too. Not that you're not, I don't mean to say that you're performing for the audience's reaction. I don't think that's in the forefront of our minds when we act. No. No, and it's also not not at all, because everyone brings, I mean, even just what you were talking about, about that story, it's what's also interesting, uh, uh, giving that speech post-September 11th, is the circumstances that have happened outside the theater, so obviously in that example, are affecting what's going on inside the theater. In a smaller level, that's the same thing that happens every night is and everyone brings their yeah. stuff inside. No one lives there. No one, I heard Tony Kushner say this art articulately once and, and I'm going to butcher it, and, but I'm, uh, and try to claim it as my own, but he, yeah, he, <laughs> once you butcher it, you can. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> In fact, you have to. <laughs> right. So I had this thought the other day, uh, you know, no one lives inside the theater. Everyone, uh, you know, it's not, we go outside and we, you know, get divorced or, you know, to pay our taxes or get married or, you know, something good happens. And then you bring it all inside the theater and we all collect, you know, even the actors, actors are like, you know, they get stuck in traffic or the bus, you know, doesn't come or whatever. Um, you know, had had food too close to the perform. you know, their vocal cords. Oh, anyway, we all bring it in. <laughs> we all bring it in and meet for two hours and, uh, you know, have this kind of almost archaic version of communicating where it's one guy or two, a couple people in front screaming out this story that has to be urgent. And whatever they bring to it, they pull a detail that you wouldn't have thought of because you're not from, you know, Queens or you're not from, you know, Florida or wherever they're, whatever they're bringing in their, their life. And they uh, pick a moment or a costume or a lighting effect that they don't, aren't conscious of, or a line of dialogue that maybe doesn't mean anything to you, but suddenly opens something up for them. And so why, why it's beyond your responsibility. Your, your responsibility is just, just to say it, not even to feel anything, but just to yeah. mean it and yeah, tell the yeah, truth, yeah. you know, and whatever that effect is, maybe alleviate stress that it's not your responsibility. You know, I, I, th I think that kind of a... Do you, do you get together with the other actors at all before the performance? Or do you see them for the first time on stage? No, we, we actually have a fight call where, because we have a fight, as you know. Yeah, our, and it's uh, really well done. Oh, good, yeah. Wow. Stage I, I, was, uh, I, I once had a, a, <laughs> a minor version of that in a play. Oh, really? And I, all I had to do was walk up to the guy and grab him by the lapels. And I hurt my little pinky finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we that's a, we used to have this uh, moment in the in Burn This where I 
grab a pillow and slam it on the couch. And we have this massive fight, as you know, and that that's always been fine. But when I, one time early when we were in previews, grabbed this pillow and stubbed my finger. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to yeah, hear that. And it was swollen for two months. It's still, <laughs> it's still kind of swollen. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah, right. The smallest thing can get you. Right. Meanwhile, we're like WWF, you know, wrestling or so you have the fight call every night, and that brings you together. Yeah, that, that's kind of turned into our, you know, we we the fight call lasts like maybe a minute, and then we spend the rest of the ten minutes or rest of the nine minutes, you know, talking about what uh, we did that day. That wasn't that, planned. Think, it just yeah, kind I of, think that's so great. And yeah. I learned that when we were doing Mash, instead of going to our dressing rooms between shots, which can take an hour sometimes or two hours, while they light the next set. Right. Right. I. Uh, we would sit around in a circle and make fun of each other, <laughs> you know, just, just laugh. It's very much like the military. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we'd take that togetherness that we had established off camera and just carry it right into the next scene. Right. So that we were, we still had that same contact, but now it was in terms of the lines of the scene. Yeah. And, and I'd love to hear examples of people who found similar ways to do that same kind of creation of a connection uh, well uh, noah does that i feel like he um where every well also because the one we were shooting the trailers were so far from where we were actually right. shooting we had to stick you, together you had to stay together yeah but soderbergh is another example of that uh, steven soderbergh because he moves so fast mm -hmm. there's no time to go back and do whatever. I can't do anything on sets anyway. Like I've tried to like, oh, I'll read a book. You know, yeah, like, I tried to write a screenplay once. Oh, and really? It was really crappy. <laughs> <laughs> you can't think of two things at once. Yeah, I can't. I can't at all. And they're like 12 hour, you know, 14 hour days. So you can't. But for Soderbergh sets, they're, they're like, you know, you know, they, they break for lunch and, and that's the end of the day. He moves so quickly that he'll, he'll, you know, because usually on the set, as you know, there's, you know, the, uh, camera operator, the director, and yeah, but he's he's doing all of it. So everyone, oh, he, does, he does all those jobs. Yeah, he is operating the camera. He's figuring out the lights. It's all pretty much practical oh, lights. Great. If and they you bring don't, in, you a light. don't rehearse much. Not a lot, not a lot. No, we'll we'll run through it. And he's like, "Oh, is that what you're going to do?" Okay. <laughs> He'll come in and be like, "Okay, that's fine. I'll build yeah. it around what, yeah, what, right. You know what what you're doing." And he'll have an idea here and there, but he's ve it's very silent and focused. And and often the what you're talking about has nothing to do with the scene at all. You're, and so he'll pick it up. Everyone's kind of like following him, you know, seeing what he's going to do. And all the conversations that you're used to seeing between the director and he's having it in his he's head. having it in his head. So he'll just grab. Grab a bean bag and put it down. And the bean bag like, is what he puts the camera in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. see. And he he'll just set it down and he'll stop you in the scene where he knows he's going to cut. He, huh. He's like, no need to go from there. I'm just getting it for this. That's, oh, that's, wow. That's it. <laughs> so he's cutting it in his head already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll he'll look at a scene for a long time and then suddenly it's. Uh, I've talked about this a lot, so I, I feel fine speaking for him. But he'll, if he can't figure it out, he'll think about it for a while. But as soon as he sees it, like, it's like he can't shoot it fast enough. And he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he likes the momentum. And because of which the actors, no one goes anywhere. Everyone's staying on set. And uh, often you don't get a lot of time, as you know, to meet some of the actors before you start working right. on I, film. I, you know, I, I got introduced <laughs> to two actresses on, on the first day of a Woody Allen movie. Two actresses. One was supposed to be my sister, and the other was supposed to be my mistress. <laughs> I said, hello, and they said, okay, ready? <laughs>
Right. And, and your lovers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that thing of getting to know other people, it seems to me, getting to know the people you're going to act with seems to me to be so important. Mm. And I once read that Kurosawa oh, yeah. in Japan thought that the most important part of preparing for a movie was to take the actors out to dinner. And get them to not just once, but repeatedly, so they could get to know one another. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that idea. Oh, it just feels like a company. I feel like all those Cassavetes movies were all their, you know, I imagine, you know, the Gina Rollins and Peter Falk all just kind of like around eating dinner, and then someone <laughs> yeah. has a camera, and suddenly yeah, they're, yeah, they're, kind right. of, they're kind of doing it. Right. It just creates a lot of like, how, I mean, that's what I, I feel like also when you're with people. I always have the tendency, especially with directors, to if you're having like a private thing or if there's like a personal thing that uh, a scene opens up for you, that I feel like you got to share it. I feel like you got to tell, you have to. Um, what do you mean? I feel, I feel like you have to kind of make it as personal as possible. And to keep it to yourself seems like it uh, doesn't really help the scene, maybe. Yeah. You, you know, where it's like maybe there's a conversation that you can have that makes it just more personal, that makes it deeper. You know, yeah. if, if you're having, a, I think that connection so much comes out of that. I do, do you do you do you agree with this? Maybe you don't. That even if you're playing antagonists, uh, you know, one of you is the villain and the other is being uh, exploited by the villain. Right. To you, one theory is that you don't talk to each other on the set. You you treat each other like. Uh, like the enemies that you are, and almost like the enemies that you are in the play. I don't think so. I think you can trade looks and trade innuendos much better if you're used to picking up cues from clues from the other person's face and voice and that kind of thing. Right. And then when you each, both of you enter into the circumstances of the play, you're committed to that. And your imagination, and but you're being able, you're able to deepen the connection between you if you've been partners off off stage, off camera before that. Does that strike a bell with you, or do you think it's better to to keep it going, keep the animosity uh, alive off camera? I don't know. I think it. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I, I like the idea of that. I like the idea that. You're basic, you've established trust, and, yeah. and if you trust the other person because you found something that you um, uh, bond over, then you you know when you trust someone, you you feel comfortable to fail in front of you just to go as deep as possible. I feel that is a general rule. If, I, I, if, I would I would say it's a little like if you if you're doing a wrestling match, and there's all you right. throw each other into the air and. Hit them, hit them in the face with your feet and everything. It's really a lot safer if you know <laughs> right. how this guy behaves before you get in the ring with right. him. Right. It, it can be done the other way. It just maybe is not won't be as effective. <laughs> oh, it might wind up with a broken neck. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see how people could be contentious off screen. No one would know, and that's the you know what goes on behind the you know the door. You know, it's kind of like it doesn't really matter. I guess sometimes that reads as really good cooperative playing sure ensemble playing what uh, diana sands and i were very competitive on stage we were in a uh, two-character play together called the uh, the owl and the pussycat a long time ago uh -huh. 
and we were so competitive. We had we had improvised together in an improvising company <laughs> a year before. We knew each other really well, but each one of us was trying to take over the play from the other. It's not <laughs> something I recommend. But we were so we were so on one another's case on stage that people said, "Wow, what ensemble performing!" <laughs> so we have to we have to end this wonderful conversation. It's been wonderful for me. I hope it's been fun to listen to. Yeah. What the way we end our shows? I don't know if you know this. Is I ask you seven quick questions, hoping you'll get seven quick answers. Oh boy! Yeah, it's okay. not it's not painful. It's okay. roughly to do with <laughs> communicating and relating. Okay. Let's see how the, how it comes out. What do you wish you really understood? My job. Oh. Um, I, I mean, that's a long list. Um, I saw you in your job. You know, you don't need to know much more. <laughs> <laughs> need to know a, a lot. I feel like even like older uh, actors who I met or worked with, I, I, they still, um, I always saw them be like uh, uh, tortured by what it is they're doing. I'm like, oh, that's both comforting and, and terrifying that you never figure it out. Yeah, well, that's yeah. true. Yeah. I agree with that. What, what do you wish other people understood about you? Oof. I understood about me. Nothing. I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Strangest question anyone's ever asked me. Well, the other day I came out because I took a shower after the show because it was, you know, it was a two-show day. And someone asked me, what were you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Like, why did it take you so long to come out? And I'm like, well, how, do, how do I get into this? How do I get out of it? Yeah, it was a little sticky, so I just took a shower. And... Okay, here's one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like you have to look for a... If you know they're a compulsive talker, you have to look for an exit, I think, as soon as they start talking. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, or fake a... Or, fake, fake a heart attack. <laughs> fake a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? I mean, it's hard to not be general, I guess, with that because I, I feel like I try to find something empathetic about people. But I, I, I can't. Uh, I don't understand organized hatred. Mm. I can't. I can't understand the uh, uh, groups. And this is speaking generally. I, I know, but who persecute against another group because of something they don't understand? That could be lots of different groups. I know it's general, but like I, I just can't understand that. I don't. Right. I, I feel like that's such a missed opportunity. You know, yeah. to know yeah. something different other than, you know, we live. You know, travel is a, an amazing thing, and it makes you so aware of. Um, and we're, we're alive for such a short amount of time. Right. Why waste why, it? Why waste it sitting in the in the same room doing the same thing, feeling like you're right? You it's know? a little bit like one person's answer to that question, which was, I have no empathy for people who have no empathy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. That's a great, that's a better answer. And it's, no, it's, you, you explored that idea a little bit. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? A person. Person. person you like it yeah yeah i think it's rare and i always appreciate it especially if it's a hard conversation i i feel straight up and to the point i i feel all right here's the last one what if anything would make you end a friendship 
Um, it's important for me to know. Yeah. <laughs> Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this one's over. <laughs> thank you yeah, so much. What a you. great talk. Thank I enjoyed you. talking oh, with good. you. Yeah, I love talking to you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. As a United States Marine, Adam Driver trained at Camp Pendleton. And as an actor, he trained at Juilliard. They're both grueling in their own way, and they certainly help to shape the accomplished person that Adam is today. Adam is the founder and guiding light behind the nonprofit Arts and the Armed Forces. This organization serves all branches of the U.S. military at home and abroad, and the team of actors and volunteers chooses creative works and content that feature diverse themes, so there's always something relatable for the audience to experience. To learn more about Arts in the Armed Forces, please visit AITAF.org. You can see Adam in a number of recently released films, including Star Wars The Last Jedi and Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky, as well as The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, directed by Terry Gilliam, and Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Adam and I will also be in a movie together that gets released in a few months. The film is by Noam Baumbach, and it also stars Scarlett Johansson. So look for us both together again later this year. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Franz Duval, a scientist whose life's mission is to show us that we're not as different from other animals as we like to think we are. He spends a lot of his time with chimpanzees. Yeah, the male chimps are very opportunistic. They're, they're always after power. And so if I can get it with your support, I will do that. But if, if I meet a better friend or one who is a bit stronger, or a bit more loyal than you are, I will switch to the other friend. Oh, so it's like Congress. Yeah, it is like politicians. But it's only the males who are like that. The females, they stick with their friends. They never have a conflict with their friends for some reason. I don't know how they manage to do that. But the males are very strategic and always opportunistic and always changing position. Franz Duval on what we can learn about ourselves from our animal relatives, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.